Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. This time I'm going to be talking with Professor Goethe Gunel about her new book, Spaceship in the Desert, Energy, Climate Change, and Urban Design in Abu Dhabi, out this year, 2019, by Duke University Press. Spaceship in the Desert explores the United Arab Emirates' planned Mastar City, an experimental attempt at designing an emissions-free society. The first parts of Mastar City opened beside the Abu Dhabi airport in 2010 as an oil wealth-funded initiative to establish the UAE as a leader in the renewable energy sector and to begin to prepare the Emirates for a low or post-oil economy. Quickly, however, the master plan was abandoned as unworkable. But Master City also was not a failure. Rather, Gunel explores the interconnected social, technical, and political ramifications and adaptations involved in this attempt to design a potential fossil fuel-free future. She shrewdly criticizes the limitations of climate change strategies intended to protect the political economic status quo, yet also through deep ethnographic fieldwork with participants, Gunel demonstrates the valuable role of anthropological insight and social and technological adaptations to climate change. I am very pleased to now be sharing with you my interview with Professor Goethe Gurnell. So, Goethe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for your invitation. It's a pleasure. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here. Can you just explain a little bit uh, what Mastar City looks like in its genesis for for listeners who, who don't know? Uh, so Mazdar City was uh, uh, initially uh, brought together as a, and designed and uh, promoted as an eco-city project, a smart city and eco-city uh, that would rely only on renewable energies and clean technologies. Uh, it's, uh, it was Abu Dhabi's response. Abu Dhabi is one of the major oil producers in the world, and, um, and there's amongst the oil producers a, a general anxiety about sort of what's going to happen when the oil runs out or when oil becomes less valuable. Uh, so uh, in responding to that threat or that anxiety, Abu Dhabi decide, the Emirate of Abu Dhabi decided to sort of invest in renewable energies, clean technologies, and Mazdar City would be the sort of the, the iconic sort of representation of, of that investment. It would be it was designed a master it was designed a master plan by Foster and Partners, which is a um, uh, architecture office that grew out of London and is, operates internationally now, and um, and so Mazdar City would not only be a sort of like a showcase, uh, um, you know demonstrating the potential of the renewable energy and technology projects happening at Mas- uh, in Abu Dhabi, but it would also uh, be a hub for renewable energy clean technology companies. So it would be like a special economic zone where m- many renewable energy clean technology companies could come and open their offices there, etc. It became uh, very popular. It was in the news a lot in starting in 2006, uh, all the way up to 2011. And um, it was Sort of featured as a sort of a utopian project, a science fiction project, uh, and a, you know an answer to sort of how people are going to live uh, at the time of energy scarcity and climate change. In 2011, when the master plan got cancelled, the uh, that hype sort of died down, and um, the media started covering it as a sort of a uh, the first uh, ghost eco city or the first ghost smart city. And and so my narrative tries to sort of position it as something that's really neither of those things, neither really a, a, the utopian project that's trying to, that's going to change the world, nor a sort of a ghost city that's uh, a, an utter failure. 
Can you describe a little bit the, the first time you got there and what it looked like and, and what it feels like to be in this space? Uh, so the project was designed for 50,000 people and 40,000 commuters. Uh, and so it's described as a, 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 you know, a full, you know, a full city project, uh, in its commenters in its early commentaries. But when I first showed up there, of course, there was, it was a, it was a, a construction site and there was, um, the, I, the first buildings that, uh, were put together were the buildings of Mazdar Institute. No, I mean, it's not a branch campus, but it's a it's a research institute uh, that was sort of put together by MIT, MIT's Technology and Development Program. And um, so when I first visited, it was yeah, it's the site that's site by an, uh, by the Abu Dhabi airport. It's by a golf course. It's by the Formula One tracks. So it's this kind of uh, this zone that's dedicated to uh, renewable energies and clean technologies, but it's actually surrounded by all these heavy emitters um uh and it's uh that's uh, that initial experience of the site always makes people wonder what does what what the site really is trying to achieve uh and makes people think that this is actually a paradox right but in a way uh after talking to some people there and spending some time there i was able to see that these are all different kinds of economic diversification strategies that the Emirates of Abu Dhabi is attempting. And so let's see which one's going to work out. Maybe it's going to be the Formula One tracks that, uh, you know, help Abu Dhabi uh, move to a future uh, with less oil or a post-oil future. Maybe it's going to be the golf courses. Maybe it's going to be the airport. And, you know, all these uh, uh, become part of sort of the, uh, the 2030 economic vision. And so when I, and, and I spent most of the, most of my research there happened in 2010 and 2011. And in those years, the Mazdar Institute campus uh, had been finished and had started functioning. And the students who went to, who did master's and PhD degrees at Mazdar Institute were the only inhabitants of Mazdar City. And faculty members uh, commuted there. And there's also a, sort of the makeshift office of the other, other Mazdar bodies and so there were people commuting to the site uh, to come and like work in their offices, but they they weren't really fully living there. But the presence of all those people uh, allowed me to sort of understand how uh, how the people who are participating in the uh, construction of an eco city actually reflect on uh, on what that eco city means, both for the sort of the their immediate environment, so for the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, for the region, so for the Gulf, or, or also globally. So there are m- multiple scales at which the project operates. Yeah. So could you describe then a little bit uh, as we're getting, as we will get deeper and deeper into the experience of these these cosmopolitan um, students and researchers who are building this place. Uh, but can you first uh, describe a little bit about what you expected this research to be about when you got there and, and how your experience there really changed your questions and your, uh, your interpretations? Yeah, thank you for that. That's actually a really important question because when I first started uh, thinking about doing uh, research on Mazdar City, I started contacting various people who were involved in the uh, in the project. Mostly, these people were affiliated with MIT and uh, were the sort of the easiest people for me to access and meet up with and talk to. And one of the people I met asked me, "So, do you intend this project to be a sort of a like?" Um, 
you know, the classic science and technology studies book, uh, Bruno Latour's uh, Aramisor's um, Love of Technology. And, and in that book, uh, Latour is uh, looking at uh, the sort of collapse of a, a personal rapid and transit technology project sort of in Paris. And, and it's in a way a story of uh, what Latour calls an autopsy of failure. So why do projects fail and how do projects fail? And he asks explicitly, so who killed Aramis? And the book is uh, sort of put together as a sort of a, almost like a detective novel uh, where, you know, uh, two people, two sociologists of science and technology get together to understand who killed Aramis. And, and initially that was the approach that I had towards this project as well. So how does, why does the project not work according to the, sort of the ways in which it's imagined? But once, uh, once I started talking to people and started visiting the site and started spending more time in uh, Abu Dhabi, I realized that that approach was probably quite limiting because the binary of success and failure was going to uh, be less helpful for me than actually asking people how they understand the future of the project and how they feel potential about this project. So why do people invest their time and energy into this project and what what's the kind of what are the different kinds of futures that they see emerging from the project? Uh, so conceptually, that was the big shift that I experienced. And that was I, that's actually, I think, one of the major contributions of the book is that it's looking at this sort of non-teleological temporality of sort of thinking about uh, the multiple ways in which we imagine, uh, imagine time and imagine the future. Yeah, and... and um, your temporality is such an important theme when it comes to... Uh, climate change and uh, how we think about it, whether it's that that sense of impending urgency that is everywhere uh, in the news, or um, whether it's about this kind of always always imagining a, a slightly different future just just beyond the horizon. And it seems uh, in this work you're really dealing with how these um, these actors are thinking about potential and how potential gets created and, and how we imagine it. How do you think about this, this idea of potential and how do you unpack what, what goes into it? I mean, I, in a way, I, most of what I took from that idea was given to me by my interlocutors and I uh, re- really work with their, their definitions uh, of how they understand potential. Uh, and one of the th- core uh, sort of parts of that were sort of was this deep belief in sort of how new technologies, new business models and new design solutions are going to help us uh, change the world. Uh, so there's a very sort of in investment in, the, uh, in, in progress, investment in sort of despite climate change and energy scarcity problems uh, through sort of technical adjustments, we're going to actually be able to preserve the status quo uh, at least for a small percentage uh, of the human population. So, so that's 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 the kind of potential that, that I think people saw as existing in this project. Uh, so, uh, in the book, I call it a status quo utopia because it's not a utopia that's really intending to uh, you know reach a non-place or a non a sort of a non-synchronous temporality. It's actually something that. It's an attempt at preserving existing social, political, and um, uh, economic conditions uh, for a, a select uh, group of human beings. Um, so, so that's that's 
that's the aspiration that many of my interlocutors shared. And it's not that people did not question these aspirations, but they thought that this was inevitable. This is the best case scenario. This is the best thing they can do because everything else is going to be uh, asking too much and asking and being be too ambitious. Uh, really, it would be overreaching. Um, so despite the sort of the utopian, again, ambitions of the project, there's a sort of something that's, that's deeply conservative about the uh, imagination uh, of the project and the design of the project. Yeah, and can you describe a little bit then what was expected? You know, is there is there first envisioning this project back in two thousand six, and as Foster and Partners begins to design it, what was the idea about how this place? On the one hand, it's this kind of closed utopian community that's supposed to be sustainable and so forth, but it's also supposed to be modeling practices that are to get exported. Is that right? Yes, definitely. And and how did they uh, did they actively try to do that, or what role did that end up playing in the institute? Uh, so, the, the both of those things were important because it was seen as a sort of a hub, an isolated or insulated hub. But in that hub, there would be sort of new ideas uh, uh, emerging in that hub, and new ideas being experimented with. Uh, it's it's a test bed, and in the test bed, you can see how certain things uh, work or don't work. And then based on their uh, sort of functionality within this test bed, they can be exported, etc. So all these ideas were constantly being circulated. And and so which made uh, the presence of a research institute, Mazdar Institute, very significant because some of the work that was going to come out of there, uh, some of the idea was that uh, the Mazdar Institute would be like a Stanford or an MIT, which would lead to the creation of many startups in Abu Dhabi, and those startups would generate a sort of a new um, uh, economic powerhouse uh, in Abu Dhabi that would be an alternative to the existing oil economy. And 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 given that uh, the uh, in, there's a lot of as you know, Abu Dhabi is very deeply embedded in networks of uh, energy, it would be easy for those networks to be sort of retooled and reconfigured as a non-oil but non-fossil fuel networks that would still, uh, you know, uh, so so that was that was a big part of the project. And there was also, in addition to sort of uh, the, the Mazdar Institute project, there are uh, other um, uh, sort of a smaller, I mean, the other components of the projects, that was Mazdar Capital, which is a, which invested in renewable energy, clean technology companies around the world. Uh, Mazdar Power, which actually built uh, uh, solar power stations and wind power stations. Uh, Mazdar um, Carbon, which was a climate change uh, policy unit. So all of these units also supplemented the work that was going on at the Institute uh, in making sure that the research that's being um, put together inside Mazdar City could be exported to other parts of the world and could be turned into capital for uh, for Abu Dhabi. But, and I think some of that work still continues. Uh, the Despite the master plan's cancellation uh, in 2011, the Mazdar City still retains its uh, sort of character as the uh, renewable energy uh, clean technology center uh, within in in the Arabian Peninsula, and so um, there are the multiple companies have come in and built their built buildings there. So, for instance, Siemens has a R and D center there, etc. So, all of these. Um, 
activities uh, go on. But what's changed is that it's no longer an eco-city or a smart city in the way that it was imagined. But now it's turned, trans- become uh, what the, its promoters call a city of possibilities. And it's a lot closer in its current conception to the uh, oil company towns uh, uh, of sort of 20th century uh, or to special economic zones that we know of uh, from around the world, uh, which sort of, uh, specialize in certain kinds of uh, products and and uh, offer tax benefits for the people who uh, build or export or import those products. And um, And it's not in a way, this transformation is not that surprising because there are other versions of these kinds of uh, zones in the UAE. So, for instance, uh, one of the examples that my interlocutors often use was the media city in Dubai, which uh, they saw as being quite successful because all the media, once all the media companies function there together as a sort of a, as a hub. Uh, so those are some of the ambitions, and I think those ambitions are constantly changing. Uh, but the, but the period that I looked at, which is the 2010 to 2011 period, was critical because it saw the cancellation of the master plan and because it saw the cancellation of some of the more experimental projects that were happening on site. Uh, and uh, and that was a period when the sort of the idea of the city of possibilities started to emerge and started to replace the idea of the eco city or the smart city. Yeah, and and for the people who are residing in the in Mastar and you know these these international students and, and researchers and so forth, how do they interpret the 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 ending of the master plan? Um, I mean, they, uh, the people who were inhabiting uh, the city were there for short periods of time. They knew that they weren't going to necessarily uh, live there all their lives. Uh, and they saw themselves as test subjects within the construction of an, within sort of this uh, project. Uh, and they thought that, in a way, their reactions were being somewhat recorded, but they didn't fully understand if their reactions were really uh, transforming the decision-making on site or having any impact on decision-making. Uh, but they knew that they were being uh, watched for their water consumption, for their electricity consumption. For They knew that if they wrote a, um, you know, a commentary on the city, the commentary would be picked up quite uh, quickly uh, by the media, by researchers from around the world, because there was a lot of interest in the project at the time. Uh, so they didn't necessarily uh, see themselves as fully sort of, uh, as say, citizens of Mustar City in that way, or but they saw themselves more as experimental subjects that were there for a short period of time and that and they knew that they were going to leave once once they graduated. So they knew that they weren't actually going to, you know, rent apartments on Mazdar City and continue living there. They wanted to sort of benefit from some of the startup opportunities that were happening. Uh, but there are, but and some of them, I imagine, will be able to do that even going forward in the future. Uh, but many others actually um, took took on jobs. I mean, they did, they either pursued uh, PhD degrees abroad in other countries or, um, or they joined companies in, um, in the UAE or elsewhere. There were most of the people who were going to school at Mazdar Institute or pursuing degrees there had the sort of the international um, sort of capacity to be competitive on other, other job markets outside the UAE as well. So they, they benefit, I mean, they took advantage of that. Yeah. Can we talk then about some of the technologies that are really being developed, these these technical adjustments uh, at Mastar? And, and you speak, you write uh, about uh, a number of them in your book. 
uh, including uh, this energy currency and the rapid transit, the personal rapid transit system. Um, uh, maybe the, the place that starts the, is the transit system. Uh, and can you describe what this was and what happened with it? Yeah, I think the transit system is actually a very good example of sort of some of the uh, of, of, of the projects that were happening there. And I think it's also conceptually been really important for me in thinking about the, and thinking about what the project is trying to do. Uh, what it is is a person rapid transit is a technology that uh, emerged in the 70s and it was experimented with in different parts of the world, in Japan and in Europe, uh, partially in the U.S. as well. Uh, it's It's... It's a set of, I mean, person rapid transit constitutes of uh, individual pods that are not that are not on a track, that are not on a railway track, uh, that can sort of, um, you get on a pod and you say, I want to go to the station X, and the pod takes you to that station without necessarily stopping uh, at other stations on the way. Uh, so it was very popular because it's a way of bringing together public transport. So you don't have to park your car. You don't have to necessarily uh, buy a car uh, in the first place. Uh, But at the same time, it gives you the flexibility to sort of directly go to your destination without sharing the uh, pod with too many people. So in the case of uh, the Mazdar project, for instance, the pods could have up to six people in them. But mostly, ideally, they would say if there are four people, then you should be ready to go. So, uh, so, so this is the it's because it's a combination of sort of the it combines the advantages of public transport and private uh, cars. Uh, it's it was you know it was popular all around the world in the seventies and eighties, but then then the infrastructure required for uh, putting it together and. Uh, the, proved very financially demanding and in the and many of those projects were cancelled although they were celebrated in, in their initial conception so what hap- what makes them also quite you know look futuristic and what makes them sort of significant for our visions of the future is the, the fact that they're driverless right so you get on a pod and there's no driver you just click on a sort of a a screen and you say um and actually in the case of uh uh the mazdar pods it's uh, there's a person, I mean, there's a sort of an automated voice that actually greets you and says, okay, I'm going to now take you to your station. Uh, and and in a way, uh, aesthetically speaking, it's a lot of sort of these ideals of sort of the 1960s future uh, coming together, and which is what made the Mazdar pods attractive for many people. Many people came to Mazdar City to experience the pods, to see the pods in action, um, and to almost as almost as visitors to an amusement park, many of my um, interlocutors said that they were, you know, the pods were actually a, a major attraction. And in the case of Mazdar City, what happened was that you know the uh, people said that one of the main reasons uh, Foster and Partners won the master plan was because they came up with uh, pods as a transportation solution for the city. Uh, they would the pods uh, would eliminate the driver, so. Uh, there would be no need for uh, you know uh, workers uh, to enter the city, uh, and at the same time, uh, the pods would be in a in what they called sort of the undercroft, a basement level, which would be sort of hidden from view. Uh, so the city would actually be would have no transportation uh, at sort of the plat on the 
you know, the pedestrian platform, all the transportation would be hidden, almost like a subway network. And all of those things made made a PRT very desirable. But once the construction began and once the financial crisis hit, uh, the uh, developers and the uh, designers realized that it was going to be very expensive to actually lift the whole city uh, off the ground and build a uh, build a, a basement in which the PRT can function. Uh, so there were a lot of discussions about whether the PRT should be cancelled. Is it going to be kept? What's going to happen to it? Um, is and many people said, you know, PRT is so important for the city. It's actually why people want to read about Mazdar, why people want to see Mazdar. Uh, but at the end, in two thousand, at the end of two thousand ten and early two thousand eleven, um, the decision was made to cancel the PRT project. So at the end, what, what's still there now, and what was there when I was doing my research, there was. Um, uh, one, I mean, there are two stops, one in the parking lot outside Mazdar Institute and one inside Mazdar Institute. So you could drive to Mazdar City, park your car, and get on a pod, get, get on one of these pods, and the ride would take about two minutes, and then you would arrive uh, at Mazdar Institute, and you would go up the staircase um, into the sort of the Mazdar Institute uh, labs and classroom spaces. So at the end, it is just a two-minute ride. Uh, so, and many people have also criticized it for being for saying, you know, I could have actually walked this distance. Why did I need the PRT? I could have ridden a, a bicycle. But the presence of the PRT uh, allowed many people to come together and to sort of really discuss what they expect uh, this, the future to be like. What what are their sort of what what's gonna what do they envision for a post climate change post energy scarcity uh, world and what kind of kinds of transportation solutions that are going to service that world? Yeah, you know, so I mean, this is one of those examples where it's it's difficult, and you do a great job in this book, and and we probably won't cover all of it right now, but where it's difficult to think about success and failure and. And, and where you draw that line. And I, I'm thinking about those of us in the humanities. You know, we, we love to point at techno-utopian visions of uh, geoengineers and so forth and say, you know, this is, this is all uh, a failure. We love to point out those failures. Uh, but in your book, you, you don't do that. And instead, uh, you look at this with a much more nuanced and detailed eye. Uh, why do you think that's important? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I think it's important to be able to see the projects from the perspectives of the people who are working on them. Uh, the people who are working on them don't necessarily see the projects as failures and don't necessarily want to see them as failures. They've invested in, say, in the case of the PRT, many people have invested uh, uh, decades of their lives working on these projects. Uh, and I wanted to understand how they envision these projects and how they envision the impact that these projects might have uh, on resolving energy and climate change related problems. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of people have written about how Mazdar City is a, sort of a greenwashing project. And I think, and I think there, that's partially right. I mean, it definitely has that. It does that for the Emirate of Abu Dhabi, but not all the, I mean, there are many people who participate in the construction of a project like this. And I wanted to understand whether, how they react to the, the, the so-called utopian ambitions of the project and take that, their perspectives uh, as valuable contributions on a sort of a larger debate on um, how we envision life beyond climate change and energy, energy in, at the time of climate change. So 
Yeah, and I and I I understand the sort of I mean, geoengineering conversations are very prominent in uh, in work on uh, climate change, and I understand sort of and I I agree with some of, a lot of the hesitation regarding the geoengineering projects, uh, and regarding the sort of kinds of failures and successes. But I also wanted to sort of show how um, in the in this project and in sort of in ideas larger ideas of smartness as well success and failure always have to be postponed and there's has to always be space for sort of thinking about uh, these projects as always being in beta mode, right? Always uh, adjustable, always um, ready for reconfiguration for um, model two. So, and, and that's another uh, way in which that's also one, I mean, in, in discussions of smartness as well, people pay attention to these these kinds of delays or these kinds of sort of the uh, the logic of the test bed, and I think uh, I think that's why it was also specifically important to look at how success and ideas of success and failure get avoided in a project that defines itself as being a smart city. Yeah. It, it, so, do you see your project that is in some way this book? Do you see it as in some way contributing to the experiment of Mastar? Uh, I hope so, in a way. I mean, I don't know if it's a... Uh, I mean, I think it's not necessarily contributing the, to the experiment of Mazda in the way that the people, uh, decision makers at Mazda would want it to contribute to, I imagine. I mean, I'm not sure if they... Uh, but, but it definitely tracks the kind of um, uh, processes of innovation uh, that were happening there. Uh, and it tracks the ways in which the people who are participating in the project were seeing the project, and which is not necessarily something that happens in uh, institutions of this size, uh, where uh, people, or at this wasn't the case at Mazdar, where people weren't necessarily communicating with one another and sharing their thoughts on different projects with one another. At the sort of a, uh, it's just that everyone's trying to get get by and finish their uh, work for the day, right? So. Uh, so I think by interviewing many of the actors that I and by spending time with them and doing participant observation uh, on on the site, I was able to uh, lead them to ask questions uh, that they wouldn't have normally asked themselves. And so I think uh, there's both my research experience and then I think the the book as well is going to have an impact on sort of how. Uh, renewable energy and technology professionals see their own projects, even if it doesn't necessarily impact the construction of Mazar City per se. So I'm wondering a little bit that I, at one point in the book, you mentioned that some figures within the, within the project uh, at one point thought about bringing in a, a team of anthropologists to examine the, the, the development of it. Uh, and this eventually gets, gets canceled or, or unfunded. Uh, but I'm wondering then a little bit about what you think is is the importance of your discipline and ethnography in uh, this moment of of global warming and the development of these different kinds of technologies. And and I'm thinking a lot about how many of the most prominent writers about global warming or the Anthropocene, as we we usually call it, really address uh, the the role the relationship between humans and what we used to call nature and, and how this needs to be rethought. And so I'm wondering, and that's where a lot of scholarly attention has gone, but I'm wondering if you see a more important role uh, for scholars to be playing a more uh, integrated, 
having a more integrated relationship with the forms of uh, technology, with the social institutions that are trying to find solutions and, and ways to work through global warming? I, I wouldn't say one of them is more important and the other is less important, but I do think that there's a sort of a need to engage with the kind of, of the cultures of expertise formed around uh, climate change issues uh, and energy issues more widely speaking. I, and I think that was one of my one of my attempts was to sort of map and document and analyze uh, this culture of expertise around um, uh, renewable energy and clean technology projects and to show uh, with what priorities those experts uh, work and what do they really want to achieve in their work um, and and I think uh, one of the things I found in the book is that beyond sort of thinking about climate change mitigation and adaptation projects, one of the things that uh, many of the people I worked with want to achieve is the preservation of uh, capitalism and and how and their major quest is actually to sort of see how can we preserve capitalism in the way that it's functioning today, uh, while at the same time trying to find uh, technical solutions to energy and climate change problems. And and this becomes, I mean, for, um, many of the people I work with don't ever question that. They take that at face value as the sort of the, uh, almost as the background uh, on which they work. And But I think as the climate change conversation develops and we're seeing that that's not necessarily an assumption that we can continue to make and that we need to rethink that assumption and challenge that assumption if we really want to um, uh, stop, uh, sort of uh, mitigate climate change. And and I think if by doing work um, amongst energy experts or amongst uh, clean technology experts, you're able to see those fundamental assumptions and you're able to only want, when you actually uh, see those fundamental assumptions, can you start challenging them and uh, interrogating them in meaningful ways. Yeah, so that's a, a great reason for some very integrated uh, ethnographic work. with, with Exactly, and I mean, and also other people have done this kind of work before. I mean, for instance, in the 1970s, Laura Nader, who was one of the sort of the first people who did uh, work amongst energy experts. I mean, she did this kind of work to sort of see what the kinds, what are the kinds of assumptions that energy experts makes make in their uh, daily conversations. What are the things that they never question, and how can we actually uh, reveal those things so that we begin to ask questions about them? So, thank you for that. And uh, I, you know, I don't. Um, there's much, much, much more in this book, and it's a very uh, rich piece of scholarship. And, and you cover so much, including. You know, carbon capture and storage, and uh, the idea of an energy currency, and uh, the architecture of the place, the the PR, the energy system, and so forth. Uh, and I want to leave much of that for the readers to to find themselves. But is there some part of this book that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that is present here on this interview? Uh, I think it might be important to sort of talk about the title of the book a little bit because uh, the title is also kind of a homegrown title and that it's actually came from one of my interlocutors. It was, it's an ethnographic title, but at the same time, it's a title that I think has conceptual value in, in describing and um, analyzing the project. And 
the title came from uh, a student who was uh, uh, finishing a master's degree at Mazdar Institute. And she uh, was one of the first people who moved into uh, the Mazdar Institute campus. And when she uh, got there, she wrote on her blog um, an entry, which she called a spaceship in the middle of the desert. And many people became attracted to it and many people um, called her up and she was very surprised at the kind of attention that she received. And, and uh, once that uh, sort of that idea of the spaceship in the desert became sort of uh, available, uh, many people from many of the executives from Mazdar also took it up and started using it in their descriptions of the city or in communicating their understandings of the city. And uh, and I call the book Spaceship in the Desert because one of the re- one of the things I try to do in the book is to ask why this description became so important and so def- so definitive in a way. I mean, so so useful for the people who are making the project happen. And um, and I saw how the t- idea of the spaceship is this sort of uh, technologically enhanced space, but it's also insulated. It's also uh, mobile in that it can explore new frontiers, it can take the, can carry us forward or carry its own uh, residents, carry its inhabitants forward uh, in into a future that's not yet available to us. And it's also operating in the desert, and so the desert is always has always been seen as this sort of uh, by sort of French and British colonialists, especially this like diseased space that's going to, that's going to be that's going to need fixing, or it's also been seen as, I mean, if you look at science fiction movies, uh, most of the, you know, uh, the planets that uh, the protagonists of those movies travel to uh, have, have deserts on them. So if you think about movies like uh, Star Wars, etc., they take place in deserts. So the, uh, the desert is also uh, embodies this sort of exotic, you know, exotic sets of exotic meanings for its uh, not for its dwellers necessarily, but for the uh, people inhabiting, for the people coming to inhabit it from the outsiders. So I think it's important to sort of all think about all of those things and uh, understanding uh, how we imagine the future of urban design. Right? Or is it going to be? So are these are our eco cities or the spaces that we're going to inhabit in? Um, uh, in a sort of post-oil future, going to be these spaces that are cut off from the world at large, are insulated uh, like spaceships, uh, but technologically enhanced. Uh, and also, I mean, if you can think about processes of selection uh, for entering a spaceship or becoming an astronaut, you can also think about sort of what that means for uh, uh, an urban project. So um, maybe I'll just leave it, uh, the listeners at that. And um, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's a great place to end. Um, so, uh, Gochi, what are you going to be working on next? Uh, so I want to continue working on energy and environment-related issues, and I'm actually uh, now looking at um, uh, temporary energy technologies. Uh, one of the things I'm interested in is sort of how uh, infrastructure um, becomes provisional and what are the kinds of things that provisional, uh, the kinds of... Um, uh, benefits provisional infrastructures can uh, provide. So I'm looking at uh, very sort of low-tech projects. Uh, one of the things I'm now writing about is uh, floating power plants, uh, old ships that become retrofitted to function as power plants. Uh, they These power plants use um, 
uh, heavy fuel oil or natural gas. And uh, one of the uh, floating power plants I'm looking at is in Ghana. It's uh, built by a Turkish company, and it produces 23% of Ghana's electricity. And I'm trying to sort of see, uh, as we're looking at sort of the energy transitions, we've always focused on uh, sort of the transition to uh, renewable energies and clean technologies. Uh, and my uh, and the Spaceship in the Desert also does mm-hmm. that work. But I'm trying to see if and how the transition to, you know, uh, fossil fuels happens in places in, in places that we haven't necessarily studied. So, for instance, in Ghana, uh, hydroelectric power was very significant, but uh, climate change has uh, generated, I mean, has impacted uh, the water levels in hydroelectric power stations. And so it's become necessary to use these technologies that are, uh, you know, considered dirty technologies. Hydro, I mean, uh, but at the same time, technologies that don't require any law from uh, any upfront capital requirements and that don't necessarily uh, that are easy to lease. You don't need to buy them. You don't need to build them. So, so, so I'm following up with some of the questions from the book. But instead of looking at how oil-rich uh, countries plan uh, for a future beyond oil, I'm looking at places that suffer from energy scarcity uh, in the present and that try to find uh, solutions quick and um, quick and urgent solutions to energy problems in the present. So the temporality of the project is a little bit different and the kinds of technologies I'm looking at are a little bit different, but I'm still interested in exploring um, energy and environment-related questions. Well, I hope I get the opportunity to interview about that book when that comes out. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Have a great day. Bye.